0: All right, well welcome everybody to our first of Evangel Academy where I'm very excited that you're here. Um, I'm very excited to kind of walk through what hermeneutics means tonight, but there's a couple things that I think will be important for us to understand. The first one um, is yes, this is kind of like we're calling it Evangel Academy. It's a little bit more of like a formal learning, um, more of like a lecture style uh, like class, but I want to encourage you guys if you have, that this is not just me like barfing information to you um, but i want this to be like a moment of discussion i want this to be a time of conversation uh, so if you have a question as i'm like talking uh, like please just interrupt me just throw up a hand ask a question whatever uh, please interrupt me because this is not just me wanting to like regurgitate to you but this is like a time where us as community get to kind of ask those questions that maybe we wouldn't get to ask on a sunday uh, or wouldn't get to ask in another time. And so I want this to be a moment of discussion. Uh, we'll have discussion questions. And so uh, I'm hoping that we can uh, like journey into some learning and unknown together. Um, one of the quotes that one of my professors said to me that has always stuck with me is, knowledge is not about uh, what you know, but it's about the questions that you ask. And I think that that's both the knowledge that you have, but as we journey in knowledge, and gain knowledge, I think that asking those questions are the way that we truly actually learn um, and allows for us to really like root information in our heads and in our hearts. Um, And so that's kind of why I want this to be a little bit more uh, question and conversational, but also then formal learning style as well. Um, So before we jump in, I'm gonna pray, uh, and then we'll just go over a couple more things uh, that's on the next slide. So God, we thank you so much that you were here with us today We thank you that uh, you engage not just our hearts, but our minds uh, and our whole person. And so God, I pray that tonight would be a moment uh, that we get to learn more about your word and come in together in community around that, uh, that great, great scripture that we have, the the toolbox and the transformation of truth in our lives. And so God, I pray that you'd be with us, uh, that you would give us great conversation today uh, and that we would learn more about you, which is really why we're here. So that we can glorify you and so we love you we praise you and we pray this all in your name amen amen well i had uh in all of my years of college which have been um many i never had a a teacher or somebody in a formal learning style tell me how they organize their notes Um, and i always found that to be really annoying because i am like naturally neurotic and so i need to like know these things and so i apologize first and foremost that those words are so tiny uh, but this will give you kind of an overview of what we're gonna be talking about through our whole time. So not just in this block of learning together, but in our next one on Tuesday, the third as well. So the first one we're talking about is like introduction. What even is hermeneutics? We'll be going into key terms. Uh, these are some like need to know definitions that I'll be using that uh, we can kind of carry in a toolbox of knowledge. Uh, there's an activity, discovering your hermeneutic. There is the task of hermeneutics. Like how do we practice this? Would it look, what does it look like? What's the goal of it? Um, setting your scope, practices before you jump into interpretation, and then we have principles of hermeneutics, adding tools to your tool belt, uh, how to use commentaries and other tools, and then one more activity. So this is going to be, of course, over the next uh, two learning blocks, like I'm hoping we get through all of this, you know, we'll we'll do it together, we'll journey together. And so that's kind of an overview, and so how I will organize kind of our notes today is the very first like, large category will be in a Roman numeral. So if you actually, Lucas, go two over, so that will be a Roman numeral, so that's our introduction. Sub, uh, like sub titles will be in alphabetical order, so it'll be like A, B, C, D, E, F, and then after that will just be bullet notes. So there'll be bullet point, bullet point, there might be an indented bullet point and that kind of has to go with the point that I had just said. Um, so that's kind of how we're going we're gonna to organize a little bit of our time together. Um, I know for me that I hate having to figure out how somebody, uh, when they're doing like more learning style notes like this, how they do those notes, uh, so that's just like a quick idea for you guys to just kind of know how this is going to be, to know when we're switching gears into a new topic or to a new category, um, just for you guys to kind of know and understand. So I want you to imagine uh, a tapestry. A tapestry, like you see on the screen, is this ornate, really beautiful, very um, rich picture that we get to see. Oftentimes, tapestries were used to tell stories. And so you'd see this big tapestry of this like, big, long story that happened um, in history. And there are always these like, beautiful depictions that we get to see. And I truly believe that scripture is a tapestry. That when we study and learn about the wholeness of scripture, that we see a tapestry. That, yes, there is a picture that we get to see, but there are intricate details, there are uh, textures, there are, uh, there's depth that we get to see, and there's this beautiful picture that we get to see, both in like, the very minute and small, and also in the larger understanding of, of the whole tapestry, of the whole of Scripture. I want to read you uh, a poem, actually, by somebody named Corey Tenboom. She was uh, a Dutch woman who actually harbored Jewish people during uh, World War II because she felt like that was her God-given de- like, destiny and calling in that season was to harbour Jewish people so that uh, they would hopefully avoid uh, some of the awful things that happened to them. Uh, but she, she wrote this poem. She says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason Why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. One of the pieces that I found very interesting and and kind of striking in this poem is that we get to see the underside of the tapestry because you see this beautiful ornate picture uh, in the front of the tapestry, but if you were to turn over some tapestries, this isn't with all of them. But if you were to turn over some tapestries, the back of it is this like ugly kind of strange collection of like random threads that like stick out, they're in groups, they're bunched together, uh, they're, they're frayed, they're not often very like picturesque or beautiful. And I think that when we are uh, journeying in faith, we are seeing the underside of the tapestry. And as God reveals truth to us as we walk with him, as when eventually we see him again as he comes, we will see the the. Uh, top side of the tapestry. But I think for now, what we see often is the underside of the tapestry. And I say that because uh, we see por- like portions and pieces of scripture, um, but as we journey and learn, we see how those threads come together. We see how those threads begin to create a beautiful picture of God's word, his truth. Uh, his his um, fullness of, of understanding and revelation of who He is. And so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the underside of the tapestry. Those threads and, and pieces of scripture that maybe seem disjointed or, or not like part of a whole story, uh, but actually make up a beautiful, beautiful picture for us. And so we're, uh, that's kind of the nature of studying the Bible, is finding those threads and seeing how they actually connect to each other and make a beautiful picture. And what hermeneutics does is it discovers and understands uh, how those threads create that tapestry, Um, but also how each thread is important and it applies to our lives as well. So we have this like macro and micro view of what scripture is when we walk through hermeneutics. Um, But sometimes it's like, you know, I'm saying this word hermeneutics, but like, what even is that? Like, what even is hermeneutics? And so we're going to go through a definition of what actually that is. So hermeneutics is simply the theory and methodology of interpretation. Hermeneutics is the theory and methodology of interpretation. It's up there on the screen if you if you want to write it down. Now hermeneutics isn't an exclusively Christian term. Um, actually, it's just like a Greek word that was used uh, now if you were to like interpret a book like a, like a fiction book in some way you would be practicing what's called hermeneutics. So it's not actually like an, an exclusively Christian term and yet Uh, us as Christians have adopted that term and used it for, obviously, us um, applying, interpreting the Bible. And so that's kind of where we find the word hermeneutics from, is the theory and methodology of interpretation. So it's interesting because hermeneutics is both a science and an art. It's a science in that there are methods, there are uh, ways that we, like, methodically work through uh, how to interpret a scripture, the scripture, a big passage— um, but it's also an art in that it's not just like clinical, it's not just um, empty or void of, of emotion, it's not empty or void of richness or um, color. And so interpreting scripture is both a science and its methodology and an art. Um, and I think it's kind of it's almost like cooking, where there are methods in which you cook, uh, but there's also an art in the, in the understanding and texture and flavor and how those things all work together. And so hermeneutics is both a science and an art. So today we're going to frame our study with two pieces of scripture. We have uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, and we have Acts 17, verse 10 to 15. Does anybody want to read? Mm, Actually, you know what? We are recording today, so if you don't mind, I'm going to read it, because then uh, all those who are joining us later will be able to also hear it. So if you don't mind, pull out your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Full disclaimer, I always have an issue finding Timothys in the bible because they are so small <clears throat> so 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 to 17 it says all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we see that uh, scripture is both like, beautiful in that it's God's revelation of himself, but it's also useful for us. Um, it is actually the revelation and the best view of what God is and of who Jesus is and how we should live our lives. And it's not just good to like, make us feel nice. But it's also good to teach us, to build things in us, to reveal things to us, to correct us when we need it, um, and to have like an objective piece of truth. And so that's kind of part of what frames our understanding of scripture, is that it's both beautiful and useful. And then we have Acts 17, verse 10 to 15. This is what it says the brothers and sisters immediately sent paul and silas away by night to berea and when they arrived they went into the jewish synagogue now these jews were more noble than those in thessalonica they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so many therefore believed with not a few greek women of high standing as well as men but when the jews from thessalonica uh, learned that the word of god was proclaimed by paul at berea also They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I love the story about the Bereans. It's like this very short piece of Acts, Um, But they were people that were called more noble than those of, you know, other churches. And the reason why they were more noble than other people is because they didn't just believe what was said of Scripture when it was preached to the, to the crowds, but they searched Scriptures as well to see if it truly was true. Where they didn't just take somebody's word for it, or the Apostles' word for it, but they actually sought Scripture to see if what they were saying was actually true, and so that's what actually made them more noble. And that's actually part of what we do with hermeneutics. That's part of what we do when we ourselves interpret Scripture as well, is we are like the Bereans, where uh, my hope is that each one of us seek scripture, to see if what we hear is true. Because I think that that makes us uh, thoughtful uh, pursuers and readers and also understanders of scripture. And so that's kind of what frames our study today, is both that God's word is useful and beautiful, and also to be like the Bereans, where we have the ability to test scripture, uh, or to test the word that is said with scripture, and and to dig into it ourselves. And each one of us has that opportunity, uh, and we'll hopefully gain some tools over our time together to do that. Well, now we want to talk about the role of the church in interpretation. Hermeneutics is about interpretation. So, the role of the church in interpretation is to be custodians, where a custodian is somebody who uh, cares for and tends to and um, really just takes some time to, to make sure that what is there is kept beautiful and is kept sacred, is kept important. And so, we, the church is there to, like, kind of, we're not the, here to add or subtract. Uh, from Scripture, but we're here to to be thoughtful keepers of Scripture together. Uh, But then we have the role of of us as individuals in interpretation as well. Uh, If you want to go to that next. So before the the Reformation, uh, which was years ago, uh, before the Reformation, uh, oftentimes the Catholic Church uh, the priests in the Catholic Church were the only ones that were able to interpret and, and to proclaim Scripture. Part of this was because of church tradition, and part of it was also because uh, the literacy rate of people was very, very low. And so uh, oftentimes they didn't actually have the ability to read Scripture themselves because they were either illiterate or it was written in Latin, and um, I don't know Latin, do you? And so, uh, and so that was often the time. But then the Reformation came, and out of that, um, we, we kind of... or not we, Martin Luther, uh, created a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And what that essentially means is, is he has a quote. It's it's really interesting. He says, "Uh, faith alone is a true priestly office. And what he means by that is that we all have, if we are people of faith, if we believe in Jesus and have accepted him into our heart, is that we all have the office of priest, which is to interpret scripture, which is to read scripture, which is to communicate scripture. And so that is uh, what we all have the opportunity to do today. So it's not just us as pastors that are here to like, communicate, interpret, and share scripture in a way that's um, like educational and also transformational, but it's actually also your responsibility as well. That each one of us, if we are believers, have both the responsibility and the ability to interpret scripture, to read it, and to be part of that priesthood of all believers, where we all have that opportunity and ability to read, interpret, and share scripture. We have to remember, though, that although we are all the part of the priesthood of all believers, is that we see in Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest. And so as much as there is, all, all of us have a responsibility and ability to interpret and share scripture and the truths contained within, is that we, have to, uh, we are held into account by the great high priest Jesus. So that doesn't mean that we just get to interpret how we want to, and it's because, well, I'm, like the, I'm, I'm part of the priesthood of all believers, so I can interpret this however I want. But actually, we come under the accountability of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And so we need to be thoughtful about that, because uh, our interpretation, if not an account to Jesus, can often lead us astray, uh, and it can actually not be truth at all. And so I think that's something that we need to consider is that although we are part of the priesthood of all believers, uh, we, are, we are not the top of the, uh, of the rung, so to speak. There is always Jesus as a great high priest. So our faithfulness in interpreting scripture is held accountable to the great high priest. When you hear that, what does that kind of inspire? I hope that it inspires a bit of awe in your heart um, and maybe just a bit of um, healthy fear of, of the Lord in order to be thoughtful and and, uh, good interpreters of scripture. And finally, we're laborers. Uh, We're laborers with scripture as well, because laboring with the text when we're interpreting it is really difficult. There are some times where you will read a piece of scripture where you will be camping on a particular part of the Bible and you feel like you're stuck there. You're like laboring with scripture to understand what it means uh, and and what it means for yourself and what it means for those around you because there are parts of scripture that are vague. There are parts of scripture that are confusing. There are parts of scripture that seem very far removed from our culture, and so it's in those moments that we labor with scripture together, where we're working with the Holy Spirit uh, to understand what that scripture means, both for us, um, about God, and about the world around us. That's kind of some of the, uh, the ways that we, the roles that we play in interpretation. Any questions uh, about any of those things that I just said? Do we need to go back on anything? Repeat anything? We're gravy. Awesome, okay. (coughs) We're gonna go over some key terms because I'm gonna be using some of these terms uh, throughout our time together. Uh, And they're terms that I think are important for us to understand what hermeneutics is um, and also actually is not. (coughs) Excuse me. So the first one (coughs) is exegesis. Exegesis is one of those uh, funny sounding words. Basically, the, the definition is to pull meaning out of or from the text. Exegesis is to pull meaning out of or from the text. So it's like you're looking into scripture and you're reaching out the meaning from scripture itself. Uh, and this is really actually our goal of, of interpreting is exegesis. Exa is a, is a Greek prefix uh, meaning out of, And so that's where we get exegesis out of. On the flip side, we have a word called eisegesis. Eisegesis is to arbitrarily impart meaning onto the text according to one's bias, presupposition, and or agenda. Or it simply means reading into the text. So we don't pull... So exegesis, if you're you're opening scripture, is pulling meaning out of, whereas eisegesis is putting meaning into or overlapping it on top. And what we need to avoid is the second one, is eisegesis, because uh, when we read meaning into the text rather than pulling it out from the text, um, it's it's often faulty. It's often faulty because our emotions, our biases, our personal agendas um, are feeding into that, and so we're actually not pulling proper meaning out of the text at all. Now I have a question though, Uh, and, and I want you guys to kind of have a conversation around this. Do you think it's possible for us to come to Scripture without any bias? No, and, and why is that? Like, why do you think that we come to Scripture with bias? Yes. Right, yes, that's true. Yeah, their hope is that our presupposition or bias is one that is aligned or um, in subjection to Scripture and, and to belief and faith in Jesus, that's true. But why do you think we come to, to Scripture with a bias? <clears throat> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, yeah, because we, we've all lived with a worldview that has been shaped and created over all of our lives. And so although I think that it's, it's actually impossible to come to Scripture without a bias, um, we get the opportunity to suspend it and to allow God to pull meaning out of Scripture to change maybe our bias, to change maybe our agenda, to maybe change uh, uh, some of our presuppositions that we come in with. So I'm not saying necessarily that presuppositions are bad, but when we impart those presuppositions onto Scripture arbitrarily, we end up um, actually creating an idol out of Scripture because we have created Scripture to fit our mold and our ideas and our agenda. And at the end of the day, that's not what God intended for His Word. What God intended for his word is for us to be pulling out meaning that he has already imparted into scripture. And so then if we were to read meaning into, then my meaning that I may read into scripture will be different than yours. And so then we just begin to degrade um, the truth of what scripture actually is. And so as much as we can and, and we need to be people who avoid eisegesis when we're, when we're interpreting or, or reading scripture. Well, the next one that is, is gonna be a little bit of what seems like splitting hairs. Uh, the difference between hermeneutic, singular, and hermeneutics, plural. Um, and this is a little bit, it really does seem like splitting hairs, but uh, they are a little bit different in kind of their function. So we have a hermeneutic, singular, is a particular system of interpretation organized around an established frame of reference, having an acknowledged set of presuppositions, values, or beliefs, which then guides or controls the interpretation of text. So we're not going to get into this too much, um, but there are different methods of interpreting or different um, like ways that we orient around our interpretation. So there's like historical critical method, there is um, the sociorhetorical method, there's all these different methods that you use. This is where hermeneutics is a science. Um, and so your one that you bring to scripture is a hermeneutic. Um, and so that's not the way that you're imparting meaning, but it's a framework in which you pull meaning out of scripture. And then hermeneutics uh, refers to those rules and principles that pertain to the interpretation of any text, irrespective of literary genre. And so when we're saying, like, this is my hermeneutic, this is what I come to with as a framework to scripture to pull out meaning, those things may be a little bit of a different approach than somebody else. As long as we're pulling meaning out of the text, we may come with a different framework in how to do that. Um, And some of those ones will have their benefits and some of them will have their drawbacks. Um, But I think it's just a little bit of a, although it feels like splitting hairs, I think it's important for us to understand. Um, And then finally, we have anachronism. This is a fun word. I love saying it out loud, anachronism. Um, Anachronism is an act of attributing a custom event or object to a period in which it doesn't belong. The way that I explain it is you're going back to the future, like like the show, like the movie, Back to the Future, where you're going back to the future. So it's, it's like almost as we're reading in scripture and being like, isn't it so strange that they were on chariots and, and they were pulled by horses when, like, why didn't they just drive a car? Right? Like, that would be anachronism. It is an event, an item, something that we're attributing onto scripture. Um, and the time that we see anachronism or that going back to the future attributed often is when we are reading the Old Testament now. Because we live in light of the New Testament, the New Testament revelation of who Jesus is, um, but we can sometimes get it backwards where we think that the Old Testament people had the same understanding of uh, Jesus that we do, and the answer is actually that they didn't, because there is this progressive understanding of who Jesus was, and so anachronism is going back to the future, um, in terms of how we're talking about certain pieces of Scripture. So, I want to do a little bit of an activity. I want you to write down uh, and share then, later, three hermeneutical principles you use when studying Scripture. So what are some things that you come as a framework to scripture? Is it that you believe that um, scripture is the inspired word of God? Is it that you believe that scripture is there to transform your life? Like what do you come into knowing about scripture when you read it? That's kind of part of what your hermeneutic is. So I want you to write down three principles of what that is. Take a moment to think about it. Maybe you've never thought about it. Um, That's okay. This is just a moment to kind of consider and maybe even just write down one if you can't can't get three. I know that when I was asked this question, I was like, I'm doing what? <laughs> and I'd already graduated, so um, here we go. Another way we can ask this is, what do you ask of the text when you come to it? When you're, when you're opening scripture, what are you asking about scripture? If you're, uh, if you're there, give me a thumbs up. Oh, wow, that's great, okay. Um, Does anybody want to share what some of, maybe even just one or all three of their hermeneutical principles are when they're coming to studying scripture? Okay. So like what is the context? That's great. You're like steps ahead of me, Doug. I love it. Yeah. That's great. Um, Understanding kind of the the genre in which you're reading of scripture. Awesome. Um, Context. Great. Love it. Yeah. You know, I have a prophet uh, at college who is writing a commentary on numbers and I'm fascinated to know what it's about because I'm like, how, how do you write that much about numbers? Uh, so that's great, thanks Joyce. Yeah, Lisa, yeah, that's great. God reveals his character, you can't hear. Can, can you say them again? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, if you say one, then I'll say one so all of us can hear it. God reveals himself and his character. Guidance with our own personal walk, yep. and the belief that it's his inspired word. That's great, that's awesome. Any other, yeah, go Tim. That's great, yeah, that's, it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and rebuke, yep. Training in righteousness, yeah. That's great, yeah, so you're, what you're saying is that scripture is the objective truth that you have to butt up against, and that, yeah, and not the other way, and if you're not butting up against it, there's something that needs to adjust. That's great, that's awesome. Any other thoughts that they wanna share, any questions that you guys have? Yes. Yeah, that's great. That's actually a hermeneutical principle we we're talking about is that scripture interprets scripture. That's great. Awesome. Well, great. Uh, Here's like a... I just have to think about this. Here's like a hermeneutic that is kind of like a micro-expression of what we're doing um, or kind of the method of interpreting. It's... Do you remember the SOAP method? Uh, It's a way of like understanding or reading scripture devotionally where you have... It's like SOAP. Scripture, observation, application, prayer. That's actually like kind of a hermeneutic. Right? like That is a way and a method of interpreting scripture, because you have your piece, you observe what it means, you apply it to your life, and you pray. Um, and so that's kind of like a small picture of what we get to see of what hermeneutics really is, and there are many like, details and, and depth to those, those processes that I think that we uh, don't really even cognitively know that we're doing, um, but that's just like an idea of what, of what hermeneutics is, is like the soap method. It's kind of like a, a small-scale idea of what we're doing today. Uh, But we do have like a task in hermeneutics. And this is kind of the purpose of what hermeneutics does. The first one is it reveals context. And context is actually, or what I would say, is the most important starting points in interpreting scripture. Context is perhaps one of the most important starting points in interpreting scripture. Oftentimes there's a term that says context is king. And context is the original setting in which an event takes place that frames interpretation. So we have the original audience, we have the original setting that happens there. And so this is really, really important for us to understand is the original audience and the original setting. So setting is um, like anything that is uh, time, people, geographical area, cultural, uh, understanding of that time. Those are all ways that we understand setting and then by extension context. Um, historically, context actually wasn't really an important part of hermeneutics. Uh, this is kind of back before the Reformation, where context wasn't really important. It was kind of like, I was the interpreter of Scripture, and this is how I view it to be, and this is how it should be for your life. Um, but it kind of creates this like weird interpretation of Scripture, and actually I think it has contributed to some abuses of Scripture. Um, as time went on, and as the Word of God was able to be studied by all, in both a pastoral way, but also in more of an educational way, There actually began to be a backlash against the application of Scripture that suited the church rather than what was faithful to God's Word. And so that's actually one of the greatest um, beauties of having educational institutes that are Christian, whether um, like a Christian university or a seminary, is that we get to kind of understand that context and join around Scripture in a way that doesn't necessarily serve the purpose of the church or the priest or the pastor, but that serves to be faithful to God's Word. Um, and there are broad context and specific context. So we have, like, you know, the a broad context would be that, like, the Jews were God's people. And as time, as Scripture went on, like, a broader context is that, like, the Jews and Gentiles then all were, were God's people if you believe in Jesus. Um, like, a very uh, small or specific context would be more things like, what is going on culturally in this moment? What is the socioeconomic um, tensions that's happening in scripture. Who are the characters in scripture and how are they interacting? So that's where we see between broad and uh, specific context. So understanding the original context is what allows us to understand God's truth in our context. So I think there's, there's a step that we need to take before understanding what it means for us, and I think that we need to start with how, what does it mean for them? What did it mean for that original audience? What did that mean um, for that original setting and that original context. And I don't think that we can truly understand what the context means for us, unless we have that first start. And so that's often why, you're he- why you will hear us uh, when we're preaching, give like a random, what seems like arbitrary random like, history lesson about the people of God, is because that's like this big, <clears throat> when you're preparing scripture you take like this much and you like make it into this much. Um, and so that's what we're doing is we are hoping and helping you guys understand the context that we have, like, gathered all this information about because that context is actually really important. And that's actually something that I often look at and and listen to. Could you say that again? Well, then, Siri. Um, Clearly, Siri wants to join us in our Evangel Academy today. Um, That's why we do that. And so I actually find it's really important uh, when I'm listening to somebody preaching, but even when I'm just listening to somebody talk about God's Word, is are they talking about that history moment? Are they talking about what it meant to those people, the, the tension going on around, the culture of the time? Because I think that that's actually really important, and it can seem like something that you maybe just like dislodge from your memory because you're like, is that even important? It actually is. I think it's actually one of the most important parts of, of a sermon or of interpreting scripture because we will never know what it means for us if we never knew what it meant for them. And so that's why context is very important. So I want to ask you guys: What are some questions that we can ask to help guide us in understanding context? Because it's great to like talk about context is king. That's awesome. But like practically, what are questions that we can ask that help us understand context? Who is God speaking to? What is the surrounding text? That's awesome. Yeah, before and after that piece of scripture. Um, yeah, who are the people that God was talking to? Or the the people in that story? That's great. Who, what, when, where, why? That's awesome. Yeah, I think another one I would add is how. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Um, any other questions that we can ask? Yep. Uh, do you mean in relation to scripture, or do you mean in relation to history? Yeah, no, that's great. That's actually a really good one. Is to bracket what you're reading uh, with other pieces of scripture. Yep, that's awesome. Another question we can ask is where in the world is this happening? Um, so there's like a large scale that often lots of things happen in the ancient Near East, um, but in the and then the Mediterranean, but like. In Athens, what, what is going on in Athens? Like when they're here in this, in this place, what are some of the things going around in the broader culture? Um, we can ask, like, who, again, who is in this story? What are the characters? And what, what do we know about them? Um, bracketing scripture, I think, is great. Any other thoughts about some questions that we can ask to help us understand context? Yeah, what's the religious or philosophical understanding of, of the time? Yep, that's great. Both of um, our religion of Christianity, but also, or, or um, like the Israelites' understanding of Jewish culture, or what is like also the religious understanding that's uh, apart from Christianity going on in the world. That's great. Awesome. No, those are great. We'll be going through a couple, a couple of other ones, but those are all really awesome. Uh, I really appreciate. Those are great thoughts. The next one is to pull out meaning. And I, and I really do believe that there are phases of meaning that scripture reveals uh, in, in hermeneutics. The first one is, what, it, and this is a context one, is what did it mean to the people then? I would say this is exegesis. And then we move to the next one is, what does it mean about God? What does this piece of scripture say about God? Another phase of meaning that we would find then is what does it mean to me personally? Like for my life today in 2021, what does it mean? And then in light of this, in light of what it meant to the people then, what it means about God and what it meant to me personally, what does it mean about us now? Because we oftentimes feel that scripture is just for us and that it's true. But scripture was also something that was often shared amongst the community of believers or the community of people. So it's important to understand what it means for me personally and also for the, for the culture and community around us. Um, and the next one is, how do I share with you, you, what it means to me? Um, and that one I would call like an evangelistic phase of meaning, um, just in, in terms of like sharing about God's word with another person. So those are kind of some of the phases of meaning that happen with, uh, with hermeneutics when we're interpreting scripture. And then finally, the purpose. Hermeneutics is to reveal purpose. The simple question of how did the writer or how did um, the people in the story use God's word and why? Why did the author write this? How does it push forward the thrust of their writing, of their argument, um, even push forward the, sto- the like, overarching story of God? Uh, And so it does also reveal purpose, both of uh, the book writer and also of like the overarching story of scripture. All right, that's the beginning stuff. Um, I'm gonna give us just like five minutes to kind of get up, maybe shuffle around a bit, use the washroom if you need it, get some water, um, talk with a friend. Uh, So we're just gonna take a brief break before jumping back in, so you guys have a couple minutes. Um, Okay, so one of the things that I think are important before we actually, (laughs) this is funny, before we actually jump into like doing hermeneutics, is to set your scope, Um, and I think setting your scope really helps you when you work through some of the principles we're going to be talking about today and in our next session, uh, to help you kind of just understand those a little bit better. So this is kind of like a pre, or a preparation in terms of like reading scripture, interpreting scripture, understanding scripture, or studying scripture. The first one is read, read, read. And reread the text. I think that we really undervalue this, and especially in our like, even in our devotional reading of scripture, is that we'll like, you know, flip open to that verse that our Bible app is telling us to read. We'll like read it once and be like, oh, yeah, that's right, and that's it. And we close our Bible, and that's the rest of our day. Um, but I think that we, by when we read, read, and reread the text, we actually begin to see pieces of truth and scripture and beauty of scripture that we don't get to see if we just read it over once. Um, one of my favorite things, I'm like a, there are, so, there are two people in this world. There are people who read a book and never read it again, and there are people who read books and reread books. Um, so I don't know, like who, who's like a read a book and put it away right away, like never to read it again? Whoa, who, who's like a I read books and reread them over and over again? Who doesn't read books? Great. I didn't see any of you. You're good. Um, I love rereading books. One of my favorite series of books, I have probably read like 10 or 12 or 15 times. And every single time I read that series, I will find something new that I didn't see before. Where there will be a piece of connection that, they like, that the author weaved through the book that I never saw at the beginning or in the middle of the book. Whether it's um, a conversation that's particularly impactful for me a piece of dialogue or a piece of that book, whether it's a setting piece that I'm like, oh, I never like in my mind when I was creating the world that they were creating in my mind of writing that story, I never thought about that particular piece. And I think that's actually what what happens when we read scripture. Like, isn't it crazy to think that a book that was written over thousands of years of time that has probably been reread thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times before is still relevant, is still beautiful, is still impactful and is still new for us today. That is like the living, breathing word of God. And that's why I think we need to read, read, and reread the text because we will see uh, in different seasons, in different times, and different moments, um, pieces of scripture that we missed. And so that's why I think it's so, so, so important um, in our devotional reading. Um, and it's one of the ways I think that we prepare ourselves uh, and, and orient ourselves around scripture. And so I think we need to read, 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 and reread the text, and I think that, it's, that is especially important when we're doing hermeneutics, when we're doing the study of scripture in more of a deep and in-depth way is that we need to read that scripture over and over and over again. The next one is use various translations, um, and if you can, read the text in the original language and compare their inter- interpretation uh, in different kind of translations of the Bible. So one of the things that we have, uh, if you go two ahead, I think, Lucas, oh, sorry, one ahead, that's great, stay there, Uh, is we have a literal, a dynamic equivalence, and a free translation of scripture. Um, So that's just kind of different methods in which scripture translations are written. So we have a literal uh, translation, which is something like the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, or the, I think that one, the YLT is the Young's Literal Translation, um, and so those are like a literal taking from the original text and like just pulling the very like, like flat interpretation and um, understanding and, and translating that text. So it would be uh, sometimes strange to read. It would maybe feel a little bit like strange and disjointed and not very like free-flowing. Um, that's because they take the original language, so either original Hebrew or ri- original Greek and they just like directly translate it and write a translation for us today. So it's like weird and sometimes like confusing. Um, there are people that really love it and, and often scholars will, will often use a literal, literal translation because uh, they're smart, way smarter than I can I am and they'll know the original tech, language and, that, and ours today and be able to figure it out. Um, I'm not smart enough. Then there's a dynamic equivalence and a dynamic equivalence is li- moving a little bit further away from a literal translation but it's kind of in the middle. So we see that in the ESV, we see that in the, uh, actually I'm gonna go, we see that in the ESV, we see that in the NIV, the CSB, and the NLT, and that's kind of moving, the order I just gave is moving from more literal to more free. Um, and that is using and trying to uh, keep much of the integrity of the original language, but in a way that's like user friendly, or a little bit more user friendly, um, where it flows a little bit more like English, it makes a little bit more sense, um, oftentimes when you're reading scripture, you have like a little like um, super B or A, and you'll look down at the bottom of your scripture and it gives you alternative words. That's them using a dynamic equivalence. So uh, the word that just I think in my mind is there's a word called doulos in Greek. Um, it's translated to slave, but oftentimes we'll see it as servant. Um, and so in scripture, that's a dynamic equivalence. So their understanding of slave that they're using and our understanding of servant or bond servant um, which is not a word that we, I at least use, but that's what they think is a word that we use, uh, is like one of those examples, and then we move further to like the NLT, which is more of what I would say um, is like a, I find that the NLT is a really great translation for preaching. It's a really get, great translation for uh, devotional reading, and so I actually really like that translation. Um, but that's again moving to a little bit more free, a free. Uh, translation of scripture would be like the message, where if you were to read like the New King James Version and the message side by side, you would ask yourself, am I reading the same book right now? And the answer is yes, um, but that's because the message, the message is a free translation, and actually people wouldn't even sometimes say that the message is a translation, but it's a commentary of the Bible. Um, and so that's kind of some of the ways that translations can help us. I think there are some, to be fair, I think there are some translations Uh, that should have no place in our study of scripture. Um, And I will not say what they are, but I think that there are some translations that have no place in our understanding of scripture because they have taken liberties to be too far um, from even like a free translation to be so far that they're not even a translation or a commentary of scripture or what scripture is intended to be or say. However, I think that uh, using different types of translations can actually be really helpful um, for understanding Scripture that may be like confusing or vague or use wording that's like strange for us. So sometimes I'm reading uh, a book or a particular piece of scripture. I'm like, I have no idea what this is trying to say to me. I'll read the message because the message was written as a commentary. It's very like um, I was gonna say like cool guy language, but that's maybe not a good explanation. Uh, it's very like free and and uh, and it's sorry. Conversational, that's a great way of saying it. it's conversational, so it's maybe sometimes an easier way for me to understand that, so I sometimes will use the message uh, in that type of way. So using different types of translations in our reading can actually be really helpful for us, because it can reveal or show things that we maybe missed in a different translation, or even that the translator had a different understanding of. And then ask questions, uh, like we've already said as part of our hermeneutic, is to ask questions. Uh, they are the Ws, who, what, when, where, why. And I think how is also important as well. So who's in the story? What is happening in the story? Uh, When is the story happening in in the timeline of history? Where is this happening in the world? Why are they even writing about this particular story? And how does this apply to their lives, my lives, blah, blah? So I think that asking those questions of the text before we interpret it um, can sometimes be helpful to paint a little bit of a picture. You know when when you're a kid, you made mind maps? I know maybe people still make mind maps, I never understood the concept, but I think that writing, having those who, what, when, where, why, how, are, create a little bit of a mind map for us to approach scripture with and help us. Um, next is, is the recognition that knowledge is not demonstrated by the answers given, but it's by the questions asked. That's why I think it's important to ask those questions because knowledge is not determ- demonstrated by the answers given, but by the questions that are asked. And then finally, it's helpful to maybe make just a list of preliminary observations that you have. So one of those could be, what is interesting in this piece of scripture? Uh, What is repeated? What do you not know? What is puzzling in the text? And then any other observations. And those can be really um, helpful guides because, for instance, things that are repeated are often something that the, the writer, and also I think by extension God, is wanting us to hear and listen and understand. Um, where oftentimes when Jesus says truly, truly, or verily, verily, or very truly, um, that's like a repeated word, and I think that it's important because God really wants us to hear that particular piece. Um, So if you see a repeated word, I think it's important for you to write that down because that helps us to understand maybe what God is trying to say to us in that particular text. Um, So those are, I think, some ways that we can kind of set our scope as we approach Scripture, and maybe even be a helpful thing as you're uh, devotionally reading Scripture even, is to write down some of those questions and just kind of see what comes out of those uh, those questions or setting your scope together. All right, so we have the principles of hermeneutics now that we're gonna jump into. We're gonna go through uh, only some of them and we may end our time a little bit early. There are actually 12 general principles that we usually find with hermeneutics. We're not gonna be focusing on all of them. Um, I pulled out what I think are the most helpful for us uh, to know. And just as a, as a like, thought before we jump into them, is uh, in the next slide you're gonna see that it says that these are not linear. This is one consideration that we have to make is that um, I know for myself I am a linear thinker where I'm like step by step by step by step by step and that's how it's always done. Um, but that's not how these principles of hermeneutics work. It's not like you do this one, that one, that one, that one, that one, and it like out comes this like perfect interpretation of scripture. Um, I would love it to be that way because I think that would be much more easy and helpful for us, um, but I think that God wants us to labor a little bit with these things because I think it produces like hope and endurance and great things and truth and dependence on him, uh, so he doesn't do that, which, um, you know, that's okay. Uh, so these are not linear. Uh, you will be moving through much of these pieces back and forth, um, and, and each one will kind of influence and change the other uh, in certain ways. And so... I think it's important for us to realize that these are not like a step one, step two, step three, step four, but these are principles that we keep as tools to use when we need to, and then maybe we put that tool back and use another one because it's gonna serve us better in that moment. So these are not linear principles. The first one that we have is original languages. So the uh, the Bible is written in two different languages, primarily, there is ancient Hebrew, which is primarily the Old Testament, And then there's Ancient Greek, which is a New Testament. Some of the New Testament is written in Aramaic. It's because it was a conversational language written then, and so sometimes you'll see it. It's confusing. But uh, if you read, like, the original language, you'll either have Hebrew, which is the Old Testament, or uh, Ancient Greek, which is a New Testament. Um, They're both dead languages. So if you were to read Greek now, it would not be the same in any certain, like, in any type of way than Ancient Greek was. Um, So I don't know if we have any Uh, native Greek speakers here. Um, But you will find that it will be very confusing for you. So that's kind of how uh, scripture is divided in terms of language or original language. So here's some things. When looking at original languages, uh, there's greater context and and intention of the writer that we can gain. Um, I took a New Testament Greek class uh, and it was very interesting because uh, New Testament Greek and also Old Testament Hebrew is um, written in such a way that is not, like, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, it would be like, dog, brown, the quick, lazy jumps over whatever other word I forgot. Um, and so it's not in like a consistent order that we would necessarily read it. Um, ancient Greek is, re- is read left to right, um, whereas ancient Hebrews read it read right to left, so that's also an, uh, down to up, I don't know, it's confusing. Anyways. So when we look at those original languages, it's very interesting because we see an intention that we would never see in English. Um, and part of that reason is because oftentimes, like for instance, at the beginning of a sentence is the word, the noun, the verb, um, the descriptor, that the, the writer of that passage is wanting us to really pay attention to. Sometimes we would never see that in, in uh, our English Bibles because we don't have the same structure and sentencing that. Um, and grammar and syntax that ancient Greek does. So we do see like a great kind of richness and depth that we would never see in our Bibles if we were to open them then. However, are any of you guys scholars of New Testament Greek or Old Testament Hebrew? No, and I wouldn't say I am either, even though I took a class in it. I can read it, I kind of know some of the things, I remember some of the stuff that I learned, um, but I would not say either that I am a New Testament Greek scholar. So there are some aids that we can have. Uh, We can use commentary sources to help our understanding, um, because I think that older commentary writers, some of the ancients, some of the greats, uh, they would have a great and vast knowledge of the ancient or original languages, because that's just what they learned in seminary. That's often uh, a prerequisite that they had. And so in that sense, they actually have really good commentary often on uh, unpacking some of those original languages. Um, and so that's actually what I look to a lot, is some of that understanding. And so you'll see, like Richard, uh, no. Uh, William Barclay is a really, really great kind of unpacker of Greek and Hebrew words. Um, Oftentimes, if you'll hear us write a quote or read a quote and it's about like a word that's written in ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek, it is because uh, he has explained it way better than we ever could. And so commentary will really, really help your understanding. Now, you may be thinking like, I don't have a set of commentaries at home. Um, There is a really, really great website that I want you guys to write down. It's called BibleHub.com. Biblehub.com is a great resource that I use uh, like on the daily basically that is very, very helpful for um, both commentaries and also what's called an interlinear Bible. Um, if you don't know what an interlinear Bible is, it is a Bible that has uh, the original languages written like, as they are in, in the text. And so you'll see both the, the Greek or Hebrew word and then like a, like in a uh, translation of it at the bottom. And so that's really helpful because then it'll give you um, a number, which the number corresponds to the definition, the English definition of the word. Um, And so BibleHub.com has all of that information, um, very helpful. We also have commentaries in our office. Please come visit us and use them, and we can give you some. Um, So use commentaries to to help in your understanding of ancient or original languages. But I do have a warning. Um, I think that we take more liberties than we should, uh, both like I see it in churches, but also just uh, in general, I think we take more liberties with original languages than we should. Um, And part of that is because none of us are New Testament or Old Testament language scholars. And because of that, uh, we have the ability to misuse or uh, misrepresent or or, uh, explain those words poorly. Um, And so I'm not saying that we should not use them, obviously I'm encouraging you to find commentaries that do, but I think we need to be very thoughtful and careful about how we are using them. Because they can very easily um, be used in a way that scripture never intended. Where again, we're like reading or or drawing out meaning that we were never, that was never intended of scripture, but because we're maybe um, not like not uh, like negatively or trying to be um, people who are who are like imparting meaning on scripture. It's, that's our intention, but I think because we're not trained in that, sometimes that can end up happening. So by no means I think are any of us malicious, and we're gonna be like, oh, this is gonna, like, this is gonna serve me really well, um, but it's just maybe a lack of understanding or depth of understanding. Um, I have a friend who got a tattoo in Hebrew, um, and he was very proud of it, and I couldn't tell you what the word was, and so he goes up to one of our uh, professors who, who, is, who taught both original languages. He's like, hey, Alf, like, do you like my tattoo? He's like, I really do. Do you want to know what it says? He's like, oh, it says this. He's like, no, it doesn't. It says horse. Um, <clears throat> because he thought it was this Greek or this Hebrew word that he was writing on his arm that meant something that was not horse, um, and it was horse. Um, and so although that's like a funny expression or a funny like, story, that's sometimes how we can do that with uh, original languages, is we think that this is something, and it doesn't mean that at all. Um, and so I think that we just need to be careful and cautious when we're using original languages because none of us are new testament or old testament language scholars Um, and so that's why we rely on commentaries and those people who actually are to guide us in our understanding and interpretation of that Um, so i don't want that to be like scary or like overstated but i just think it's important for us to understand Uh, the next thing is we have progressive revelation so as we read through scripture we see that god reveals himself and his plan for redemption over the fullness of time so we see like in scripture that we have things that happened in history a long time ago and we have things in history that haven't actually, well, it's not history. We have things in the future that haven't actually happened yet. This is called progressive revelation. It's like the overarching, uh, consistent revelation of who God is over time. And this is an important thing to have as a principle or in our toolbox. Um, So, for instance, Abraham didn't have the same knowledge of God's plan for redemption as like the Apostle Paul did. Um, now that's not to fault Abraham. Like you can't have information about things you don't know or you can't know the things that you haven't been told. Um, but there is this progressive revelation and so that's why Paul, for instance, uses much of Abraham's story is because actually progressive revelation has allowed Paul to understand Abraham's story and, and God's story of redemption maybe actually even better than Abraham did himself. Um, that's where we see the Hall of Faith where the people in the Hall of Faith looked forward to the promises that were ahead of them, that promise of Jesus, because they never had that revelation of Jesus in the same way that we do now. And so progressive revelation is like the overarching and systematic revelation of God's character, plan for redemption over time. I want to read for me from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to 18. <clears throat> For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more uh, will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, part of this is the um, understanding that the veil is taken away from our eyes when we uh, are saved and believe in Jesus. But also, part of that story was saying Moses didn't have the same knowledge of, of revelation of God that you and I have today. So that's kind of talking about that revelation of Scripture is that there was a veil over uh, their eyes and, and still to some extent over ours until we believe in Jesus and, and see the overarching re- progression of who Jesus is and God's plan for redemption. And so that's part of um, what progressive revelation is. But how is pro- progressive revelation important for hermeneutics? Like, how, how is it important? What, what's the purpose of it as a principle? Why do we need it in our toolbox? Yep. Yeah, of course, to understand God's end game, that's right. Yes, so it allows us to look back and, and um, have greater meaning to some of those texts as we see God's plan for redemption, that's right. I have a couple of thoughts. The first one is I think that our understanding and knowledge that um, progressive revelation is something that occurs in the Bible actually safeguards us against anachronism and eisegesis. Because if we understand that God is progressively revealing his character and nature and plan for redemption, it means that we have uh, more of a safeguard that we don't read meaning into text that wasn't there. Um, so for instance, uh, it means that we don't read our understanding of Jesus and the coming, the, the Messiah who has come to Old Testament characters, scripture, the Bible, um, that, that is actually not what they would have understood at all. And so that helps us safeguard us against anachronism and then also eisegesis. It's because we understand that we have a different revelation than they did. And so if we're reading an Old Testament scripture, for instance, we need to jump into that story uh, in the same place of revelation that they had. So there are some people who talk about uh, dispensationalism, which is like this idea that God reveals himself in certain dispensations or like um, blocks of time. And whether or not you believe in dispensationalism or what the amount of dispensationalism is or even care about that um, is not really what I want to talk about tonight. Um, It kind of plays a little bit with progressive revelation, but regardless of that, progressive revelation is something that we see in Scripture. I think it protects us against reading uh, historical events that haven't happened yet into Scripture and, and imparting meaning that wasn't there. And then I think the other thing it helps is it helps us settle the apparent contradictions of Scripture. I know that's a huge cultural question today, like so, so, so much a cultural question. It's like, how would I believe the God in the Bible if he allowed slavery, if he allowed um, multiple people to have multiple wives, um, if he allowed for the oppression of, or what we would see as the oppression of women in the Old Testament, like how do I believe in a God of that, in that way? And that's where we can kind of talk through progressive revelation is that um, there are different understandings that people would have had in history and although that doesn't like, permit those things to happen or allow those things to like, persist today, um, or even speak in a full truth of who God was then, uh, it is a way that we understand that um, some of the contradictions in scripture are kind of resolved, um, for an example. The other thing is, uh, in our culture today, there is an, a huge pushback between the, uh, with the like, permanence or importance of the Old Testament. Um, our fellowship, the PAOC, is currently rewriting what's called its "sofit" or now Sowit, the Statement of Essential Truths, or the Statement of Fundamental and Essential Truths, and one of the things that they needed to add this time around um, was that the Old Testament and the New Testament are the inspired Word of God, where they kind of had it as like a, a base understanding, and if you were to ask me 10 years ago if um, the validity of the Old Testament was going to be a topic that we had today, I would like... Like, my jaw would be on the floor, of course not. Like, why would we ever debate that? And yet, in our culture today, it is. Um, There are like very prominent, very influential pastors who actually don't preach from the Old Testament at all um, because they don't believe it's important for our lives today. Um, But we believe that all of Scripture, all of Scripture is God-breathed. And they think that it's something that's irrelevant for us today But when we understand progressive revelation of God revealing himself over time, I think we see the beauty of that. Um, And so I think that actually understanding this is incredibly important for us because our culture is pushing back against it. Um, And so we do believe that the Old Testament is just an inspired uh, and part of our life transformation, even numbers, uh, than any of the things that we read in the New Testament as well. Because I think that you, like for an example, you cannot understand the overarching narrative of scripture being that we have been banished uh, by our sin from the garden and we have moved away from it and that humanity's goal is to get back, is to get back and that it's lost without Christ who allows us to return eventually to a better eternal Eden at the end of our time when he comes again if we don't have a value of the Old Testament. Like, yes, our understanding of the new heaven and the new earth may be lovely and wonderful if we only were to read the Old Testament or the New Testament, but imagine the richness that we're missing if we don't understand that at the very beginning of scripture, at the very beginning of God's plan for humanity, that we have been banished from that garden and it is now our goal, and and we can't do it alone, it's it's Jesus' work that does that, but now it's our goal that if we've been moving away from the garden because we've been banished, that eventually when we receive that new heaven and new earth, that that is the fulfillment of, get, of us getting back to Eden, so to speak. And we miss that. We miss that if we don't believe in the Old Testament. And so I think that's something that's really important for us to remind ourselves and just have solidified in our minds. Um, and again, like progressive revelation, we, we filter the Old Testament now through the cross in the New Testament. So we don't uh, impart the cross onto the Old Testament because, again, like, they wouldn't have that understanding yet, but this allows us to filter. So another example is that, filtering through the the New Testament, is that Moses was like an archetype for Jesus because he was the one who brought all of his people to a safe place and he was the one who, um, who brought humanity to a greater place after judgment and destruction to a new land and to a new place and to a new sense of understanding of his people. And so that's why we see, like, in, in Scripture, we see this person is, the, uh, is like an archetype of Jesus. Um, we see that with Abraham, where uh, Abraham brought his son up the mountain uh, to sacrifice him. And, uh, and as a result, he was spared. Well, God has sent his son, Jesus, to this earth. Maybe not up a mountain, but down to earth. And his role was to save us from that judgment that we should have experienced. Because in the Old Testament, Abraham, there was a provision of that animal that he then sacrificed instead. So Jesus is our greater Abraham, because he was sent, because God as the father, like Abraham was a father and God as a father, has sent Jesus. And so that's like some of the things that we miss if we don't understand the Old Testament. Little bit of an aside, but I think it's important for us to know. Uh, And the final one that we're gonna go through today is that scripture interprets scripture. So, as a principle, no doctrine can be founded on one verse. It has been tried, um, and every time that I think it has been tried, it has been misused. So, no doc- doctrine can be founded on one verse, um, and so we need kind of some. We need more scripture than just one verse to create a doctrine or a belief and understanding about God's word. Um, and the clear interprets the cloudy. So, there are some pieces of scripture that are in, like entirely confusing. Uh, that are very strange, that are very obscure, or um, that we feel are m- we're, we're missing some of the like context of sometimes. And so the very clear interprets the cloudy. Um, and so that's kind of like a, an interpretation that we can have. So if you find a cloudy passage that you think is talking about this particular topic, whatever that may be, then if you find a clear passage that explains that, the clear helps interpret that cloudy piece as well. The next one is if there are two doctrines that are found which apparently contradict then it is up to you and I as the interpreter to reconcile these things while remaining faithful to Scripture. So an example uh, is a justification by faith alone that Paul has in all of his writings, and the justification by works in James. So we see that like, faith without works is dead. But we see with Paul that he says, well, faith alone is what brings our justification." So those things are clearly or seem in opposition to each other and so it's up to the interpreter to reconcile those things. It's up to you and I to understand how those things reconcile um, because I think that's very important for us to do um, because again, contradictions are a, huge, are a huge deterrent for people coming to faith who are part of faith or who are even critical of faith but still wanting to explore is that contradiction can often push people away and so I think that it's important um, And and that's our job as laborers and interpreters of scripture to understand how those things reconcile. Um, And so to understand how maybe those two that I just shared reconcile is that we are saved by faith alone, that our justification comes by faith alone. But as a result of that salvation that we experience, we are to do good works. That out of the thankfulness and a gratitude to the grace of God in our lives, it it, um, innately inspires us to do good works for God's glory. Um, and we see like in scripture and other pieces of scripture that um, when we, when Jesus comes again, that uh, there's two judgments. There's a white seat judgment and the great right, wait, whoa, that's a hard one. Great white throne judgment. And so two of those are for different people. So we have a judgment where it says like all that is burned, that is fire and straw and whatever the other words are, that they will be burned away. But what is left is gold and precious silver. And that gold and precious silver is our works. So that's not the thing that saves us. It says even if you have none of that, you will still be saved. Um, But that's kind of the reward that we have. And so that's how we can understand that those two things may seem like on the surface they contradict, um, but it's up to us to kind of reconcile those things together. And we will find that all over scripture. And so we can use some tools in order to do that. Um, But it is up to you and I, as the interpreters of scripture, to reconcile those things because we believe that God's word is consistent, that God's word uh, does not contradict himself or itself um, because God is a God of uh, order and not chaos. And so I think that uh, if we find those things at face value can seem very contradictory uh, when in reality we just need to do some work to interpret and understand how those things may both exist in the same realm and, and be reconciled to each other. Those are some of the principles that we have. Uh, we have many more that we're going through on Tuesday, that we will go through on Tuesday the third, um, and so we're looking. We're looking at the underside of the tapestry, um, but I'm hoping that as we journey through this, that we get to see how some of those threads, or, or at least given tools to see how some of those threads actually make a beautiful tapestry together. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yeah, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what is the best translation, that's a hard question because I think that the best translation is the one that works for you. Um, now again, like you heard my caveat that there are some that I feel like are not um, even translations. However, if you open your Bible, um, oftentimes you will have like a preface in your Bible that's at the very beginning that I'm sure you never have opened. Um, but oftentimes the preface will give you kind of the scope of their uh, way that they have translated this particular particular translation. Um, and so this is the ESV. Doo, 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 doo. So it gives like a history. This one that gives like a history of like how they got to this translation here. Some of the um, substitution words that they use uh, throughout their Bible, uh, their philosophy of translation that they have. Um, so that's actually a really helpful tool. I know that that you you maybe can't always see that uh, online if you're looking, um, but they have their principles. They have terms that they use, um, all of those things, and so. I think in terms of, now Now, keep in mind as you, I don't want you to be cynical, but keep in mind that like, as you read this, this is coming from, like, from their explanation, so they're gonna be the most um, approving of their own style, but this does give a really helpful uh, understanding of, of how they translated this, how they came about, some of the words they use, um, their philosophy of translation, and so actually that, that piece, if you're looking for a translation that you maybe want to find that's um, maybe different than what you usually read, that's always a good place to start, actually. Um, the other thing is, like, you ask, just ask somebody. Like, how, how is this translation used? What, what is a good translation for this type of reading? Um, oftentimes, if I have people that have never read the Bible before that are wanting to start, I'll ask them to start with an NLT. Because uh, an NLT is a really helpful book. I find it's um, like very user friendly, it's very devotional, it's super well explained. I think it has its challenges and and its drawbacks, but I think as, as a book, it's a, as a translation, it's a really good one. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a hard question to answer because it's not like, I'm not gonna recommend. Like for me, I use the ESV primarily and I use the CSB primarily, C-S-B as in Bob. Um, and I started using the CSB a little bit like very recently and I really like it because it's, it's similar to the ESV, uh, but a little bit more user friendly. Uh, sometimes the ESV is like very, very, um, it can be very choppy or very disjointed. It feels, particularly with Paul's writing, because Paul is this guy who used like he like didn't use any punctuation literally at all. So you have these like super like really long sentences that you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know where I started with the sentence, and somehow we're like what feels like a paragraph. Um, so some translations will deal with those things a little bit uh, differently as well. So I use I primarily use the ESV and CSB, but by no means am I like touting that that's the only one that you should use. So sorry that I didn't give you a very clear answer, but Um, The preface, it's always a good place. Any other questions? Pushbacks, comments, random things that came into your head? Awesome. Okay, well then we will end our time uh, with just a moment of prayer. God, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself in your word to each one of us. And we thank you, God, that we get to be people who mind scripture and labor with scripture and discover um, the richness of the tapestry that scripture is. And God, although we sometimes see only under Uh, the the underside of the tapestry, Lord, I pray that we would begin to see the beauty of what it looks like. That we begin to see those strings and pieces that seem very uh, disjointed or removed from each other, and understand how uh, they create the overall understanding of your Word, but also how it applies to our lives today. We thank you that your Word is not just some like old historical book that uh, was relevant thousands of years ago, but that's a living, breathing scripture, truth for our lives. And so god i pray that we would see your word as such living and breathing and dynamic and beautiful for each one of our lives and god i pray that although we see all of that that we'd also recognize uh what a responsibility we have to interpret and understand and communicate your word in a way that's faithful to you so god i pray that you would uh, never let us lose sight of the beauty of it but also give us the tools and the courage and your holy spirit uh, to be able to help us understand uh, how to share and, and interpret your word. We thank you, God, that we're not left alone in doing this, but that your Holy Spirit helps us. And so, God, I pray that uh, we would go from this place with a greater love for your word. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.